Hello, and welcome to Discourse, the Religious Studies Project's monthly feature on religion in the news and cultural and current events. My name is Jacob Barrett, and I will be your host this episode. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Religion and Culture track, and my work focuses on discourses on religious freedom in the Supreme Court in the United States as a way to get at theories of governance. Today, I am joined by two guests, and we've each brought a current event to share and discuss. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself, um, both of you, Jacob, do you want to go first? Sure. So my name is Jacob Malvett. I'm the transcript editor here at the RSP. And uh, I actually work in technology, not religious studies, but I do have a BA in religious studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Awesome. Thanks for being here. And Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Richard Irvin. I uh, teach anthropology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Cool. Well, I'm so glad um, to get to chat with both of you today. Um, And I just think we should jump in. So, Jacob, would you mind going first and sharing the story that you brought? Sure. So the uh, first story that I brought is related to the University of Vermont. And at the University of Vermont, there's been an investigation uh, being conducted by the Department of Education because of discrimination against its students, specifically its Jewish students. Um, uh, In fact, one complaint was of a TA who posted on social media uh, the question, is it unethical for me, a TA, to not give Zionists credit for participation? I feel like it's good and funny. Uh, In another instance, a a group focused on empowering survivors of sexual assault actually blocked a lot of Jewish students saying that Zionists would not be welcome in the chat and cannot use those resources to help survivors get over um, the trauma related to sexual assault. So um, pretty extreme, not only to be targeting Jewish students, but also to be using that word Zionist. That's a very charged kind of word uh, to be throwing out. And it's no wonder that university is now under investigation. (laughs) Any thoughts from you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's one of these things which I find very striking thinking about contemporary university, the the, the presumption, I guess, that, that we have of the university now being a secular space and then what precisely that secular university actually means. Um, because on the one hand, the ideal of a university as a secular space, as um, an environment in which people of, of, of all religions and none um, can can study and research. On the other hand, you know, the expectation, if it's a secular space of, well, you know, is there going to be a, is there going to be preference or even um, allowance for particular, for particular religious groups? Is there space for that within the secular university? And I think in these kinds of cases, you see, you see that tension in a way between between those ideals of secularism. To what extent can to what extent can we have a space which is open in a pluralistic way, 
which is also a space in which um which is also a space in which particular religious groups can can exist in a way that um in a way that protects in a way that protects people who are part of those groups from harm and discrimination it's you know it it is a very difficult thing i think in the contemporary university to um to approach those different elements of secularism in a way that they don't almost contradict one another if if any of that makes sense totally totally and i think um yeah that that kind of the balance of like okay is it a secular space or is it a pluralistic space like you know like what do you do with that and how i like what you were talking what you were kind of um hinting at Jacob. And if you want to say more, um, please, but I, what you were talking about the, um, the choice to use the phrase, you know, the word Zionist and say that like, right to, to pivot and say that the discrimination is against, um, Zionist students. Um, you know, like I think most people would probably say that it's not cool to say, okay, we're going to discriminate against Jewish students. Um, but the like subbing of, um, that phrase, you know, that, that phrase and that term, um, is, is an interesting one. And I think it's not to, that's not to say that like the two, the two are conflatable, right? Like you can be Jewish and not be Zionist or you can be Zionist and not be Jewish. Like that, that's, those things don't necessarily have to go together, but, um, the impact of what, what has happened is in discriminating against Zionists, um, Jewish students have have been discriminated, and and I think that I don't know. It's it's interesting to me the ways that um, when we invoke f- certain terms or certain categories, the ways that maybe like side effect discrimination or like you know like the non intended or like the hidden agenda <laughs> intended of the that discrimination takes place. You know. Yeah, yeah, and so for me. Are they using Zionist because they think it's it's a way of you know radicalizing Jewish people? Is it are they using it because of the political situation with Israel Palestine? Yeah. You know what what what's going on with them using that word? Is it politically charged? Is it religiously charged? Either way, it's prejudicial. So, right. um, I, I think that that choice of language makes it something different than just being an anti-Semite. I, I think, I think it's trying to say something else, but you know, is it, is it this kind of woke pro-Palestine culture, which, um, you know, I think a lot of that is a movement that, you know, it's a complicated question and no one really has an answer there. And I'm, I'm not going to say either way, but there has definitely been a very pro-Palestine movement I've seen um, come out in the United States. And I'm wondering if that is causing, you know, um, very prejudicial backlash and and actually creating discrimination instead of stopping discrimination. Yeah. And that like the like the in that like invoking um Zionist language in terms of like, right. My guess, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to these people, but my guess would be that like, it is out of a 
pro-Palestinian um, kind of advocacy movement to say like, okay, we're anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian. Um, but then like, right. The department of education is involved in a way because like now it's not, it doesn't seem to just be Zionists, <laughs> you know, like, like people have their membership card or whatever, that it's like Jewish students are experiencing discrimination in, in ways that they seemingly weren't before. And as a result of the rhetoric and was that the intent of that rhetoric or was that was something that like happens as a result of um, kind of the messy way that all of these categories blur together. And like, you know, it, like you were saying, is it politics? Is it religion? Like, yes. And yes. And like it's all of it all at once. And like that makes for um, really messy situations of discrimination when like it gets mapped onto a situation in the United States where politics and religion i mean they're not but they're seemingly separate right like if a ta at a university were to say like well i'm gonna discriminate against conservative students like we don't have the same understanding of like okay well that's you discriminating against christian you know like christians like conservative christians like that like that conflation doesn't happen and so that's it's an interesting like dynamic of like trying do that just like highlights the ways that these categories aren't as discrete as sometimes we think they are. And uh, furthermore, you have the university, which is just given one of those very basic overarching statements. Like we don't tolerate discrimination of any kind or for every race, gender, you know, everything that's going to be represented here is going to be open, but they're not actually condemning it. They're not coming out and because that'd be kind of admitting fault, right? And that's kind of the problem is you see that in your university, you don't want to say that that doesn't belong. You're saying kind of a blanket, uh, it's not It's not acceptable. Sure. And I'm sure that that um, doesn't help the feeling of those, those targeted students um, have confidence in, in those systems because it's those systems that are tar- already making them targets. Right. It kind of goes back to, I think, a fundamental question of what what is it that universities, what is it that universities are for? What kind of communities are universities meant to be? Because on the one hand, universities have this role as a space which is, you know, space for people's development, for, you know, nurturing people at this this stage in their life um, when, you know, they've, they've just left home when they're they're wanting to discover who they are in the world in in all kinds of ways um and that puts a lot of burdens on the university um appropriate burdens in terms of how how can we provide that environment for them that people can grow um on the other hand the university as this as this space of um as this space of academic freedom is in this position where it is in this position where it must um, preserve the freedom of speech, including around political and religious issues. And here I think is is a a situation where, you know, again to return to this this idea of you know universities being in a state of tension 
of having these contradictions. How do you manage those? How do you manage those two roles? Um, and I think th- this is something we're struggling with in 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 all kinds of ways. You know, that f- between from from debates about safe spaces and whether safe spaces are ever appropriate or compatible with academic freedom to debates about whether or not, you know, whether or not the uh, contemporary university um, can, you know, put put particular discussions off limits because, you know, because they are seen as discriminatory. This is something that we're, that we're confronting head on. And I think what's kind of <laughs> tragic in this kind of case is that, you know, it's, it, it's real people with their real lives that get, that get caught up in, I think, a, a fundamental, a fundamental failure to, to know what the university is for at the advent, you know, well, we're not even at the advent of the 21st century, you know? So if I'm a student and I'm in this situation, I'm being ground up in, in the wheels of, of a much bigger thing, which is what, what are universities for? What what are we what are we allowed to speak about? How should we be speaking about it? it you know, um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of un, it, it's kind of unfair that this is sort of being you know that this is being left to people to sort out in their in their specific environments when it seems you know a much bigger fundamental social issue. Um, but yeah. <laughs> That's me zooming out a fair bit, I understand. But, you know, sometimes it's sort of necessary. Yeah, and I think, like, you're absolutely right that the university at once is both, like, seen as this mode of neutral content delivery of, like, we're just, like, delivering knowledge, we're just teaching. But at the same time, like, is the space that every, you know, like, that widely people know of, like, okay, in at university you come into who you are and you develop your beliefs and you're exposed to new perspectives and you think critically about the world. Right. So it's like this, this both and situation that like gets us and, or, you know, that like puts, I don't know, lays the space for really sticky moments of like, how do you absolutely and unequivocally defend the freedom of knowledge and, academic freedom and, you know, promote learning while also like holding intention that there's going to be some people that like might have opinions that are different and not just opinions that are different, but opinions that harm do harm to people in real life spaces. Um, what, how do we, how do we deal with that? That's it's, it's big. It's hard. (laughs) And I think that actually kind of blends in to my next story that I have um, about how we perceive it as a society, how we let the media um, help warp our perception of things that are going on. For example, that story was not easy to find. Um, It was not all over the tabloids. Um, So that kind of discrimination, because it is against a minority group, it it gets kind of swept under the rug more. And the same kind of thing happened with BYU. Uh, Recently, they uh, played University of Oregon in football. And the student section of University of Oregon really said some nasty things about Mormons, um, conflating, obviously, BYU uh, with Mormonism, um, and basically said, F the Mormons. Uh, That was one of their chants, because University of 
Oregon beat BYU that game. Uh, and it's interesting because it wasn't very well covered, but there were more news stories about um, BYU kind of having the same thing happen to them, where a, a athlete from uh, Duke University accused them, uh, accused BYU fans at an event of using racial slurs that no one else in the stadium heard, including the players, coaches, teammates. And we can't say, you know, it didn't happen, of course, but um, that something may have happened and from one person and a school gets that much attention for it that BYU students be are racist because this word may have been said versus an entire stadium full of University of Oregon students saying ask the Mormons and they're you know one's getting more attention than the other in terms of a news story and I think that's that's uh, pretty remarkable and shows how much Mormons are still kind of um, very much a minority group that people are okay with picking on in the public sphere. Yeah, that's another great example. Um, with that, I think let's um, transition over to Richard um, and hear about um, your story. What did what do you have to share with us today? Yeah, so I'm um, in in many respects. I suppose the connection would be that I'm really I'm really interested right right at this moment in how um, religion and that relationship between um, religion and politics plays out in in terms of um, contemporary geopolitics because you know that's that's the context in which individual people's lives is kind of um, refracted um, through these these big, these big geopolitical debates, and so the, the, there are a couple of instances of that right now. Obviously, the whole geopolitics around um, the whole world arriving in in London to uh, to bid farewell to to the Queen. Um, but the specific example I wanted to to talk about here um, was the um, apostolic mm-hmm. visit to to Kazakhstan. So this is. Um, so this September was was only the second time that a pope has has been to um, has has made a visit to Kazakhstan. the The first was in uh, two thousand and one. So and that was only eleven days after um, September the eleventh attacks. So it was in a context of uh, geopolitical turmoil, of violence, um, and obviously that's the same. That's the same with this <clears throat> with this visit um, and. It's there's you know there's a lot of different context to this visit, um, but the first is you know that that it was scheduled for the seventh congress of the the leaders of of world and traditional religions, and that's a you know it's a fascinating and and, and strange thing. I think I can say it's a strange thing. Um, it was initiated under Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, um, the the um, authoritarian leader of Kazakhstan, and it's you know. It's one of these ideas of bringing together um, all different religious leaders under the tent of religious diversity, um, but brings us right back to that that question of what is possible within that frame of, of, of religious diversity. Um, obviously, thinking in terms of the steppe, thinking in terms of, of this gathering happening in Kazakhstan, um, you've got the long history of Mongolian Empire, um, Chinggis Khan, 
setting up a formal religious debate um, in, in 1254. Fantastic account by Franciscan William of Rubric that of this formal debate between Christians, Buddhists, and Muslims. Um, and I guess that's sort of what's being um, invoked here with this, you know, this Congress of Religious Leaders. Um, but it's happening. And the reason Pope Francis was going there is it's happening under the shadow of this um, this conflict between um, between different uh, religious leaders in the context of the war in Ukraine. Um, and Pope Francis had been meant to be meeting Patriarch Kirill um, but Kirill uh, pulled out of the Congress. Um, so this um, occasion when there might be, you know, cross-religious, inter-religious debate um, in the face of, 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 of war and violence, but um, kind of not, not, not happening as planned. Um, so I'm sort of interested in that whole question of, you know, what does it mean to try and engage in inter-religious dialogue um, in a moment of in a moment of war, um, how does that relate to the to, you know to the lives of, of of ordinary of ordinary Christians of ordinary Muslims? Kazakhstan being a majority Muslim country, of course. Um, yeah. So that's so that's what I've been uh, what I've been thinking about most recently. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, right, and thinking those heads of the you know kind of these religious leaders being stand-ins and not stand-ins, but being, um, uh, also working as, you know, political leaders in this moment of kind of global conflict. Um, so where the kind of interreligious dialogue, um, becomes more than just two faith communities coming together to discuss about, you know, theology or their beliefs or whatever, right? Like these are really, um, intense, global like geopolitical moments where these religious leaders are coming together to to talk well so uh part of my my question with uh this kind of kind of meeting is how helpful is it uh does it help things politically does it, is it just a matter of trying to see if these very different belief systems and cultural systems are on par with certain things or um if you know, how helpful is it for religious dialogue? Uh, you know, if it doesn't help other than making a political statement, how helpful is it in, in progressing understanding of different religious communities? Is it more of just an example of saying, hey, there, there's good faith between these leaders? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm just wondering what the, um, the impact of one of these kinds of meetings really has. Right. Like it makes us feel good. Right. Like I like to see the Pope going around and meeting different people like it. It's like, oh, that's like, that's sweet. There's like harmony in the world. These leaders who disagree are coming together. And like it gives this sense of security and um, peace in a time where like that's very not like very much not what the world looks like. Um, But I think that's a really good question of like, does it actually like how helpful is it? Does it actually make it? make an impact does it actually change anything um does it change the like the lives of the people on the ground who have to deal with all of these conflicts um or is it just you know something that i get to sit and scroll through twitter and like feel better because i saw the pope you know meeting another religious leader i think that's an interesting question 
I mean, when you've got a conflict like this being so directly framed as a moral conflict, you know, then and you know you've got Patriarch Kirill referring to evil forces in Ukraine um, just today talking about, you know, the sacrifice in the course of carrying out your military duty washes away all sins. Um, I mean, it, on, on the one hand, given that, you know, these, these conflicts are, have fundamentally been framed as moral conflicts, is there a responsibility on religious leaders and religious communities to... <laughs> To, to speak to speak to those moral issues to um, to push back against those moral framings but on the other hand you know does it and and this is why I sort of brought in the history that there has always been this sense of what are the uses what are the uses of um, of interreligious dialogue for those who hold power um, does does the fact that these religious leaders are continuing to speak about this as though there is some kind of moral debate to be had around such things as conflict. Does that just leave us leave us in this um, leave us in this space where the, the the fundamentals of this as you know as a matter of life and death um, are left are left unchecked because it becomes oh well you know from one perspective this is seen as a holy war from other perspectives it's seen as a sinful war you know it, it yeah do do we simply end up um end up defaulting to some to some idea of uh yeah some some kind of a religious gridlock there um sort of strikingly one of the the most outspoken critics of pope, yeah one of the most outspoken critics of, of pope francis um athanasius schneider who was a a bishop a bishop there in um a bishop in, in Astana in Kazakhstan, he's, he's said, you know, the problem with this kind of meeting is that it could give the impression of a supermarket of religions, um, and that's not correct. So um, from his perspective, he's saying, you know, that th- this kind of talking shop, it puts everybody on equal footing, but that kind of gets away from the fundamental question of, of truth. Well, I, I think I think it also you you talking about it being a moral issue with these religious leaders making a statement one way or the other. Um, it can like you know Pope Francis has widely condemned the war in Ukraine. You know what does that tell? Um, obviously, access to media is is uh, part of this, but what does that tell members that uh, of the community that may disagree? Um, it. By, by making these political issues religious ones at the same time, it, I think in many ways it can spark religious violence and um, but also be responsible for the development of new religious beliefs and systems as arguments exist within the different churches. Um, I think I think these big blanket statements, we could see real impacts coming from them, especially as people view, you know, different leaders as legitimate or illegitimate. I think it could, as much as it could help reestablish those and make us, uh, like Jacob said, feel good, I think it could also have the reverse effect and, and cause some of those conflicts to occur in a different way between uh, members of the group and members that are outside of the group. Yeah, no, that's sorry. I was sitting here just thinking because that's all that's all great and, and a lot to think about. Um, yeah, there's definitely a potential for 
um, for schism around these kinds Definitely. of issues. Yeah. Um, I think, okay, in our last little bit, um, we'll turn to our last story, um, our last current event, um, which takes us back to the United States and the conflict at a university. Um, the story that I, um, I'm interested in talking about um, is a recent Supreme Court ruling um, that I saw in a Twitter headline. And then the more I dug into it, the more kind of twists and turns this this case has taken. And it's not done yet, but um, I'll try and do a quick job of laying out what's happened and where we are now and kind of some of the questions that I'm left with. Um, so the, the case involves um, Yesh- uh, Yeshiva University. Um, and discrimination against LGBTQ plus students. Um, so Yeshiva University is in New York City, um, and it refused to recognize um, Pride Alliance, which is um, an organization for um, LGBTQ plus students. Um, it refused to recognize them as an official university club. Um, students and alumni filed suit, um, citing New York City's human rights law that prohibits, um, quote, public accommodations. Um, is what the um, human rights law in New York City says. Um, so public accommodations, um, it prevents them from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, the university argued that it's religious and therefore private institution, so it doesn't fall under a public accommodation um, and can't be held to the same standard. Um, the court ruled against the university, the New York courts ruled against the university, um, ordering them to recognize the organization the university went to the Supreme Court, um, said that it was a religious freedom violation, and just, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor um, issued a hold on the court's ruling, um, say, saying that the university does not need to be forced into recognizing the organization until it can come up for review later. Um, and then a few days later, the court, um, the Supreme Court ruled five to four um with Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh joining the three liberal justices, um, dissolving Sotomayor's hold on the ruling um, from the New York court and um, kicking it back to New York saying, um, you do have to, the school does have to recognize the organization. And if you want to appeal, you have to go through um, the New York courts of appeals. You uh, can't just jump to the Supreme Court. Um, but they removed the stay and said that the university had to recognize the organization, um, which in turn created the um, the space for the university to come in and just cancel all organizations. So they they dissolved all student organizations as a response. Um, what I find interesting about this um, is that this isn't how the court has handled cases like this before. Um, so last year, there was a Catholic um, social services organization in Philadelphia that um, the Supreme Court ruled could violate state anti-discriminatory laws on the grounds of religious freedom um, and refused to work with same-sex couples in foster care um, and adoption. Um, There's other cases um, of anti-LGBTQ discrimination coming up um, that the court will take up later this year. so I'm just interested in thinking about like what's different in this case and why um, why the court moved the way it did to say that um, the that Yeshiva University did not need to um, 
are kind of kicking it back and saying that, you know, yes, you do have to recognize um, this Pride Alliance organization. Um, and kind of, for me, it sparked questions of like, are own like are certain groups only allowed to violate laws and cite religious freedom? Like, do we only accept um, issue discrimination from certain groups? Like, w- there's a lot kind of going on here of like why I think this, um, or, or I have a lot of questions about why this might be shaking out the way it is. Um, and I'm interested to see kind of both in lines of um, the two earlier stories on issues of discrimination and kind of political statements and um, the complex dynamic between religion and politics um, and the, the public space and, and all of that. So I'm, I'm interested to see what the two of you have to think. Well, one has to wonder if part of the reason they're booting this back to the New York courts is yes, th- there is a, a legal system of appeals that you would have to go through. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's more clerical than anything, but uh, you also have to wonder if after um, the Roe v. Raid, the Roe v. Uh, Roe v. Wade, excuse me, uh, <laughs> ruling, um, that maybe part of it is trying to get attention away from the Supreme Court on these kind of hot button hot button issues, um, uh, uh, especially since there's already legislation in Congress about. Uh, protections for the LGBTQ community, um, but there's there's also I think the real question, like you said, who, who's allowed to discriminate? If this was a Christian university, would it be different? Uh, right. You know, is it really a matter of who the victim here, who who's being targeted, is, or uh, maybe victims too strong of a word here, but. Uh, well, no, I, I think I think the ability to uh, for who you discriminate against is that group that is going to be marginalized. Um, it doesn't matter as much as the party who is marginalizing them. Uh, not it doesn't matter why, it doesn't matter you know what, but does the identity of the person who is doing the discriminating matter more? It, it returns us to to that question that I posed, which is, you know, what is it that we want? Was it, what is it that we want universities to be? What is it that we want, that we want seats, seats of learning to be? For many people, you know, it, it's, the question is kind of an inane one. You know, they go there to get credentials. They go there to get specific, they go there to get a specific piece of paper. Um, for, you know, but, but this is, this is a, a general and also, you know, it touches on that question that, you know, it, I find it very strange that I'm ending up taking the side of, of Athanasius Schneider against the Pope almost here. But, you know, that do we give the impression that there's a supermarket of views and that's not correct? If, if the university exists to preserve a certain kind of pluralism, to preserve a pluralism where, on the one hand, people are allowed to represent any kind of religious truth as long as it does not impede on others, but also um, political truths, but also truths in the matter of identity. You, you, you end up in this situation where the very question, the very question of truth, um, which is 
which was the you know the slogan of so many universities, um, <clears throat> the slogan of so many universities, uh, veritas, and so on. You know that that very question becomes something which, rather than being a shared aspiration of a community, becomes you know become becomes a, a sort of a knife a knife through its heart, um, and yeah, the, the, it, it it is an open question. I think to say, well, why why would some universities why might some universities be allowed specific exemptions that other universities are not granted? Um, but it, in it, to my mind, you know, my it, it it seems to reflect a general failure, a general failure to 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 really confront this question of what is a university for, and what is it that we want from a university, and what what is possible within a university community. Um, are, are certain things off limits? Are there things that we are saying here in this in this very conversation that um, that, that are that are transgressing? Um, but at the same time, you know, as, as soon as you're into that territory which transgresses, you are entering into this space where you may well be discriminating against certain communities, where you may well be perpetuating certain forms of historic harm. Um, it, you know, and 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 this is. This is where this is where the twenty first century university um, finds itself finds itself up against the buffers um, in a way. No, absolutely, and I think that's the the perfect place to end this with those um, really beautiful words, Richard. I, I'm I'm yeah, that's amazing and um, really a sticky place to be in, but really big things to to sit with and kind of. All of the stories today are thinking about um, what do like what like the actual practical um, impacts that these all of these stories have on people's lives and um, the role of kind of the higher the higher not higher power is like a, a divine thing but the the powers that be as in you know the, whether it's the university or some head of head of state or head of church. Um, that what what their role in kind of um, mitigating the real the real life factors um, and the real life consequences in, in people's lives have um, I think that's that's exactly exactly right and we kind of came full circle at the end um, back to to where we started so um, let me please thank our guests um, it was such a pleasure being here today with you um, and getting to chat. Um, This has been Discourse, a podcast of the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, 
iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>